Hello, and welcome back to the Silicon Sasquatch podcast. 15 years running, 15 years strong. This baby don't stop for nothing. This baby, this is a mobile baby. Uh, I'm Nick Cummings. I'm joined here today by my two very long-term friends, Aaron Thayer. Hey, everybody. And Spencer Tordoff. You really went for it with that, didn't you? We haven't done this it's in so It's a mobile so baby. Long. It's a uh, mobile baby. I don't know. I, I don't know if you're doing like a Death Stranding thing or something. I'm really unclear on that. No, those babies are kind of immobile. Uh, maybe the sequel will address this problem. Well, and they got to be carried around. In the time that we've done like a, a bigger group recording, several of us on our uh, our adventure, our blog, uh, have mobile babies that are humans that we've um, become parents of. So yeah, I think it's relevant. Yeah, I guess so. You know. Um, Cool. <laughs> yeah, that's if you want an indication of how long we've been doing this stuff, there are now like what four children and counting uh legally uh bonded to members of this yeah, team. Yeah, one on the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and we're spread across four time zones again, but like more seriously. Like yeah. The reason Tyler and Doug aren't here is because they live in Japan and Australia, respectively. That mm-hmm. whole APAC with their stuff. Wives yeah. and everything. So, well, still four is easier than five. Last year was kind of difficult. That's true. Um, but yeah, as I mentioned, uh, we've been doing this thing for fifteen years, and uh, well, not quite. You know, give it a few weeks, but um, in the time that we've been doing that, actually, I don't know when we're going to post this. We might just post it on the anniversary. Did we discuss that? Um, no, we, no didn't. we didn't, but I imagine that it would come out on the anniversary. Okay. It's our, it's our anniversary. I, I went to a university that declared its 100th anniversary like three years before the like actual 100th really anniversary. Really get the... I can say an anniversary is whatever we want. Get everyone jazzed up far in advance, I guess. I think they were more soliciting donations, <laughs> but it's like they celebrated the anniversary of... That's what we should be doing, actually. The, the bill that said, hey, we should have a university as opposed to the, you know, the start of like classes and teaching, which yeah, tracks for my alma mater. I mean, it makes sense. Like if I was tur- if I was 97, I'd be throwing my 100 year birthday that year. You know, I'm not going to roll the dice yeah. on that one uh, arriving in its own sweet time. Yeah, fair enough. I guess I guess the my uh, alma mater also fears death. So, <laughs> like any public yeah, institution, yeah, I was going to say all educational, <laughs> yeah, facilities, yeah, these days, yeah. So, yeah, fifteen years. That's um, oh man, it, it's it's kind of crazy to think that I started, and, and I I think it was literally a case, and you know, not to go too far down this particular uh, path, but like you guys were doing the blog, and I was like, hey, Nick, I see you have a blog. Yeah. You did say that. Which was a hot commodity <laughs> circa 2008. You know, big deal. <laughs> yeah. So, Got me so lots when of I was, first dates, too. <laughs> we were all like 22-ish, you know, yeah. right around there. 21, 22. Postgraduate. So. Oh, boy. Yeah. I. Uh, what's remarkable to me um, as we're starting our, our intro still here, one thing I'll say is that I think the last time reminiscing, uh, which we didn't really do much, I believe, for our 10th anniversary. But even at that time, we were saying, uh, be it on uh, 
pointless LinkedIn posts, which we still have, I think, somewhat <laughs> of a presence <laughs> of this blog on LinkedIn, like it's a formal business. But, you know, that aside or how we talk about it with friends is even then, five years ago, it was still the longest personal relationship many of us had been in at that time and still honestly probably continues to be that uh, now five years added on to that. So yeah, this endeavor we've been doing as a group has lasted longer than many of us have had partners, been married, had kids. As you can hear earlier, that we still got a lot of new kind of toddlers around the Sasquatch crew. But yeah, it's... Uh, it's something that I also see we'll be talking about this again in five more years for the 20th anniversary, which is mind-boggling, to, to be frank. It is. Um, I did the math, uh, and this blog has taken up more than 40% of my life so far on Earth. <laughs> um, so when we hit 50%, I'll have to do something for that, too. Yeah. Um, so should we talk a bit about what we have planned for this, uh, uh, this special podcast? Let's do it. Cool. So Aaron had this idea uh, for us to do a little looking back and a little looking forward. And uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that, Aaron, so I don't steal your thunder? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. So in the lead up to our 15th anniversary, um, I definitely wanted us to get together, those of us who could, uh, and think about, you know, how do we frame the last 15 years of doing this site, but not only just that, which I think in previous reminiscence periods, we've just kind of gotten together and talked about the story of the blog, which we don't have to totally rehash again here. But uh, this time, maybe we talk about the industry itself, games themselves, how they've changed in the last um, 15 years, decade and a half. So that's where I came up with a few kind of prompts. Um, and the first of those we thought about that sounded like it might be a good idea is what are some takeaways, uh, three, between each of us? Uh, each of us are three takeaways from the last 15 years of trends in the industry. And that could be the games themselves, like trends in just the actual product of the game, and or the industry, the business, right, that surrounds game development. So, yeah, it just seemed like a way to kind of frame this big length of time um, and to give us a chance to reminisce not only about what we've done as a group, but... Uh, What's been happening in this crazy, insane hobby slash interest slash business we continue to follow after all these years? Yeah, exactly. It's an opportunity for reflection and maybe some closure on uh, the past 15 years of this industry is not always easy to uh, associate with. In fact, it's often not. Uh, and then, you know, I you'll be a little bit surprised by this. I actually went a little bit optimistic with my uh, predictions for the future too. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Okay. I can't it's wait to hear to those. come by these days. <laughs> All right. So um, to kick things off. So yes, we each should have, uh, I think three takeaways to go with from the past. So Aaron, do you want to start us off with our first one? Sure. And um, yeah, I'm kind of glad that you, uh, uh, gave us a little bit of a hint there that you have a uh, optimistic view because I feel like mine unintentionally uh, became very pessimistic. So in just writing them. So uh, my first one is AAA game development costs way too much money and takes way too much time, which overall I think we probably would all agree uh, those risks involved with 
time and money uh, stifle creativity. So that's kind of a big thing. Um, and I am talking about AAA in, in general here, but uh, where this came to my mind is thinking, okay, average game costs from, again, 15 years ago, we're talking 2008. Um, even just a decade ago, I was looking up some old articles to kind of get some numbers behind this thought. So 10 years ago, Sony at that time was talking about, right, with the launch of the PlayStation 4, um, and that at that time, PS3 titles had averaged maybe between 20 to $50 million to, uh, like, top titles for the PlayStation 3 era to create. 20 to $50 million. Um, so today, you know, uh, in some documents that have come out this year from the whole uh, Microsoft and Activision merger drama, um, there are estimates in that bulk of documentation in the courts that say the upcoming AAA size game budgets going into the next few years will top $200 million on average. Uh, even five years ago, the costs were between 50 to $150 million. So, yeah, it's money. It's these big companies with a lot of cash dumping it into games that they hope then have, obviously, sales success, uh, DLC, live service stuff, blah, blah, blah. But just what I feel has been such a huge change is with that associated uh, inflation of budgets these last 15 years, we are seeing such uh a reduction in, in risks being taken and creativity in these big game spaces. And I think it's actually symptomatic of a lot of the problems we're seeing today, be it, you know, there are many, many things that we could talk about, but that's just the first thing that is my initial takeaway in looking back in the last decade and a half. Yeah, I think that's uh, maybe the story of <laughs> big budget game development over the last 15 years is budgets got bigger and uh not to kind of jump into my topic just yet but uh and yet nothing seems to be a whole lot better for the people making the games mm -hmm. or the people even playing them like i was thinking about the triple a games i really enjoyed back when we started the site and you know i used to play quite a few of them back then as well and i wouldn't say i'm having more fun with the average triple a game now than i was back then yeah. um and yeah i I've seen it written before too that we might be on the cusp of seeing the first billion dollar game budget with a B um, in the next couple of years. Like there are rumors that even GTA 6 might be over half a billion dollars uh, so far. Mm. So I, I would um, believe that because it's always been since um, Grand Theft Auto 3 blew up at the turn of the, well, new millennium, uh, that those games in particular seem to soak up a lot of development money, but they also make it back and then some, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, there's a um, meme that circulates here and there that says something to the effect of, I want shorter games made by less people who worked like a normal amount of <laughs> time. Um, I'm paraphrasing pretty hard there, but that is very much kind of my feeling because, you know, costs have ballooned. I think uh, I was just looking at a list of official figures, which I was trying to figure out how much um, Call of Duty Advanced Warfare cost, considering that it had Kevin Spacey attached to it and everything. Mm -hmm. um, 
Speaking like, of mistakes so, so, of the past. <laughs> it's, a, it's a liability. He should be paying them at this point for that. Yeah. Uh, and so the development cost by itself of Cyberpunk 2077 was $277 million, uh, not counting marketing. I was going to ask with marketing, yeah, and just yeah, like with I, film. I have that separated out here, which is... You know, that's an insane amount of money. And I recognize, you know, apparently it's pretty decent now, mm-hmm. you know, that now that it's years after its initial release. But, um, you know, it's just kind of boggling. Um, I think uh, Last of Us Part Two was apparently $220 million to develop. Jeez. Um, Battlefield 4 was 100 a number of years ago, so like inflation a, a, is 126. A bargain at this point. By comparison, yeah, and and I don't know. It it, it begs the question where the failure point is for this. Like, wh- where does this implode? And I think it's enough of these have to fail to make money to make that be reconsidered. That there mm-hmm. should be these you know massive games that you're uh, crunching people for weeks and months and years to to crank out because yeah it's i don't know not to immediately go into you know capitalism is a plague but uh it is it's a a subtitle for this podcast it's it's a distressing the amount of uh of work and person hours and money that goes into games that in a lot of cases then aren't like fine even well i i want to ask then i mean is there really even a ceiling slash um are the games that absorb this level of resource and budget the call of duties as you said the grand theft auto um outliers of trying to launch big new franchises like cyberpunk which um you know those who didn't follow we know had a awful launch uh, but the resources of its developer, CD Projekt Red, and publisher were put behind that to get it into a state where now, you know, even our dear Nick Cummings found a lot to enjoy in the latest expansion. So um, those those big games, like, are they too big to really fail? Like, even it's something like a Call of Duty, which the most recent one, I believe, uh, this year is Modern Warfare 3. I've been following that. Apparently, nobody likes it. Everyone hates it. There were rumors that the development was rushed, which was which were uh, debated by um, I think Sledgehammer did this one. Sledgehammer Games. No, you mean the yearly game franchise <laughs> was rushed? Gosh. But even so, they're denying that. But did that game? I don't know. Sell enough because it's Call of Duty on the first day, you know, day one release, first week before this narrative started, where um, maybe it's not a great Call of Duty, even for people who love Call of Duty. Did it basically make its budget back? So is it too big to fail in that sense? Like, is there really even any end to this growing of budgets? What really actually has to happen to change game development at this scale? I I don't know. I think too big to fail is probably correct, but I think it takes on a specific meaning within games, which is that um, I think the marketing machine has become so incredibly efficient and effective at identifying these kind of you could call it quadruple A if you want to be a little bit annoying, but you know, these mm-hmm. 
bigger than big game franchises that you know despite people pleading with them to stop keep coming out year after year with diminishing returns i think what happens is a lot of people become conditioned to have like there is a game they play there is a game they play with their friends whether it's like destiny 2 or call of duty or some other game with some sort of a ongoing live service component to it mm-hmm. and even when they suck people are so invested it's almost like I don't know. I don't want to get too conspiracy theorist. Oh, no, I do actually a little bit. Um, I feel like the games industry, this isn't actually one of my takeaways, but I would, I'll just add it right now. Uh, the games industry has very become very adept at hooking people up to Skinner boxes and gotcha machines at every point they possibly can to the point where like a lot of people play games more than ever. But I wouldn't say that they are playing games more intentionally or thoughtfully i think that they're coping through games a whole lot more based on the kinds of games that tend to have the tend to have the biggest um roi the biggest the longest legs in terms of um uh in, uh continuing revenue uh it's just you know life service slop and you know look i've, I've waded through those troughs myself i know what that's like i'm not punching down to anybody yeah. here but you know i think that's kind of like I, to me it's indisputable like Call of Duty used to be a franchise I enjoyed. I played a lot of those games. They did really interesting things time and time again. And they, I would say, at many times pushed genre conventions forward. Uh, and then, you know, for the last 12 years or more, it's just become this, like, toilet bowl sludge of a video game. They were like, every year, they're like, yeah, what if we add, like, a little bit of, like, um, 2,000 flushes this time and, like, it turn it blue? You know, like... I don't know. I don't want to get too like yeah, this year. The guns are green here. instead of blue. Okay, cool. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I do. I do want to note that uh, part of the reason that uh, Call of Duty, I guess it's Modern Warfare Three mm-hmm. now, uh, is being panned is that uh, it follows the story of uh, the original Call of Duty Modern Warfare Two. And does so in a like sloppy and kind of rushed manner where, simply put, it's not um, it, it's not well realized. So they somehow and, made the awful story of the Call of Duty universe even worse than this one. <laughs> well, and what I wanted to, to say is that then that means that my first article on Silicon Sasquatch <laughs> is vindicated, which was about how uh, disappointing I found the Modern Warfare 2 campaign. Now, granted, I did steal the game for that review, <laughs> um, but I continue to feel vindicated overall. Statute of limitations, they can't come after you now, right? Yeah, yeah it's they, been they 15 sure years. Can't yeah. <laughs> what are they going to do? What are they going to do? Anyway. Yeah, so, I, th- um, I think, um, I think though, this, this topic, though, about budgets is probably going to keep coming up, I imagine, through our discussion. Um, is there a, a final point anybody wants to make before maybe we pivot to somebody else's uh, takeaway? I have well, one. It's not... Oh, please. Okay, sorry. Uh, I just want to say that uh, the distribution of money and who owns what in the games industry has changed dramatically in the past 15 years, especially in, I would say, the past five where you have a lot of private equity consolidation. You have governments buying into funds and things like that. Um, And it's a very different landscape than in the past where previously you had like electronics and computing giants kind of holding the bags of money. And now you have like the Saudi government and Embracer Group from, I think, Sweden Mm -hmm. and all these other kind of conglomerates that are just sort of 
coming in and uh, dumping a lot of money down, and that's going to ultimately influence what it's like to work in this industry and what games live and die. Well said. With that in mind, um, I guess what I'm kind of wondering, because I get the, you know, are some of these franchises too big to fail? I mean, functionally, yeah, though that... We are beginning to see, I think, a little bit of decay in the, the live service uh, model, which we'll we'll get to. Um, what I find myself wondering is when we are going to see, and I suppose to a lesser extent we have seen it, but the phenomenon that is currently very uh, apparent in Hollywood where a completed film gets mm. just canned completely. And just like, we're not going to release it and they take a tax write off for it. I wonder when the first time we're going to see that with a quadruple A game is going to be. Yeah, I'm surprised that didn't happen with Babylon's Fall or whatever that game was called. Like a game that was so patently terrible and everyone hated it and they knew it, but they still launched it. I do not, in fact, uh, I wonder if that's a case of maybe those things have happened, but it's not reported in the same way. Um, mm. or we just don't know what the financial back I know end used, of that is. It used to happen a lot in the old days, like games would get finished, but then never released like shelved because a new console was coming out or something like that. But sure. now that like the differences between generations, uh, don't really exist as much. Um, it doesn't, maybe you can always upcycle something instead of just this getting rid of it. Fascinating. I straight up have never heard of this game. The, Sample art looks a little bit like it's from 2008. <laughs> it's so got it was last year. Very relevant, it's got kind though. of a Skyward Sword look. Huh. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm plainly not the target demo, and apparently it was terrible. Mm-hmm. So, but no, in any case, I think it was Platinum trying to get into the, like the Destiny space, the live service oh, thing. Right, that was a Platinum game. Yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, Spencer, do you have? Uh, one you'd like to share? Yeah. Yeah. So for the first of my observations, um, and uh, I'm admittedly being a little cheeky with this. I'm you? halfway into a uh, Punkachino uh, beer right now. Um, simply put, uh, my unwavering faith in the PC as the primary preferred ultimate gaming platform is absolutely vindicated at this point in time after these past 15 years. Um, not how I thought that sentence was going to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have seen, we, we, in this span, we have gone from the, uh, and I, I forget the generation, you know, that I guess that varies, but you know, the era of the uh, PlayStation three and the Xbox um, 360 and the Wii. And at that point, you know, it's a drum that gets beaten in the media, not infrequently, but the, you know, like, oh, well, the PC is dead at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at how powerful these consoles are, yada, yada, yada. And that, you know, that's come up a few different times. But you come to today, and all, uh, well, Sony and Microsoft, anyway have streaming services for their games that can be played on pretty much any device. Um, Exclusive franchises are almost extinct 
at this point where even like Sony's big, big franchises, I think right now are uh, the last of us, Spider-Man and um, horizon. Mm -hmm. All of those have PC releases and you know, it might be a couple years behind, but it's not on a long enough time frame. And to a certain extent that hype like drum has died down to where it's not considered a big deal. It's like, Oh, okay. I, I hear it's good on PlayStation. And I'll, I'll play it on PC. Eventually uh, Microsoft has no console exclusives at this point. Um, they have more or less gone in the direction of windows and Xbox are the same. And if you have the hardware to run games on your PC, it will run pretty much anything that's on the Xbox. Uh, Nintendo, of course, is a holdout, and that's because Nintendo, um, and I say this with a little bit of authority having worked there, um, does still think of itself more as a toy company than a software company. Uh, But even then, uh, they do also have the option to play certain games streaming. Uh, I hear most of those are not well realized. Um, they have dipped their toes into mobile gaming and to, mm-hmm. to having their games available outside of those confines. So, yeah, in the longer term, because, you know, back in the day, I, I went out and bought a 360. Um, I claimed it was to play um, Grand Theft Auto 4. Instead, it was actually to play uh, Res HD when it came <laughs> out. Um, and I bought the PlayStation 3, which I, I think I played... I don't, I can't remember like Valkyria Chronicles and a little bit of Prince of Persia and the last of us. That's all I can remember playing on that thing to today where I can have my PC, my trusty PC, Never mind the, you know, hardware issues I'm having right now. There it is. <laughs> and, 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 uh, this is, this is uh, defective hardware. That's absolutely never been seen in the console space ever. Um, <laughs> And a Nintendo Switch, and I, You're good. I am covered. It's not even I feel like I'm covered. It's ultimately whatever I want to play is going to be playable between those two devices. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I would say even back in 2008, I was already kind of thinking like, you know, if I just had a PC and whatever Nintendo puts out, I'm going to be probably good, like, just going forward. And I feel like that's really borne out to be true for me. Uh, especially like you said with all these like you know with console exclusivity essentially disappearing it's like we're finally getting close to the point where you the hardware you own doesn't matter no matter how much angry people on the internet still like to argue about Mm. that apparently so uh and happily in that same vein uh you've seen the walls between the uh the different consoles come down in terms of multiplayer where Mm -hmm. crossplay went from being this unattainable rarity to being the expectation it's actually bizarre now if a game launches with a multiplayer component and doesn't have it Mm -hmm. because at that point especially with the live service model as as i mentioned before you're leaving money on the table at that point like if you're trying to be the next Fortnite, and there is a major gaming device that your game doesn't run on that's a whole segment of the market that's unavailable so Mm -hmm. You know, it's 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 a little bit the trying to sop up all the remaining juice on the plate with the the bread, but 
it has made for, I would say, overall a better multiplayer experience where it's not like, oh, well, we're playing on 360 and Jim only has a PS3 and we can't, uh, you know, I don't know, that, that sucks. And uh, To, you know, I, I think uh, it was actually a couple of years ago now. I would love to do it again. He seems like his hair is on fire, so it might be difficult. But um, like I, I was able to play Apex Legends with Tyler. Oh, no way. He doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't have a PC. And, you know, granted, there was some latency involved. He's in Australia or in the U.S., but uh, it was a functional experience because it didn't matter what devices we were on. It is kind of amazing how quickly we've accepted that cross-play and uh, maybe even take it for granted already. I had a similar experience this summer with friends playing Diablo 4, them on console, and me on PC, and that was great. Mm -hmm. And, And that's, I think that's, great like i honestly you know yes i have a little bit of snark about i am vindicated and <laughs> having a pc is the the way to be but it means that it's a better experience for everybody it means that those petty rivalries can go away because i mean as well you guys know my main motivation with games is having a good time with my friends and now it's easier than ever to do that now that we're of course uh, older and it's harder to find time to do that. <laughs> I'll say some games, um, but you know, you, you take the you take the win with the, <laughs> with the loss. Some well, games do you... encourage the platform rivalry, though. Where, uh, for example, in Battlefield 2042, since it is cross-play, every time you get killed some by somebody and you see the Xbox logo or the PlayStation logo, you're like, "What the fuck? <laughs> How did that happen? How are what you did I do it wrong?" <laughs> I, I will confess that I get a little bit upset. Uh, if I lose a gunfight to somebody who's playing on Xbox, <laughs> but like often that will be, I have, you know, was trying to duel a sniper with a revolver that has a scope on it. And then I'm like, oh, well he has auto aim. So that's probably you fucked around and you on. found out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that that's my main motive. I have a, game, so. I have a question though, maybe like a spin on your, your takeaway, your observation here about the mm-hmm. greatly exaggerated death of the PC industry. Um, one thing that I feel like I've noticed, and this is primarily since the pandemic, and we know the pandemic and supply chains and software and microchips and all that brouhaha um, and how that affected pricing from everything, that um, not just these consumer goods for graphics cards and such, but yeah, yeah. it does feel like, and I'm curious your thoughts, PC gaming has had that momentous um, increase in interest in players in, like you said, even just the platform holders breaking down those barriers. Pandemic comes along in part, hardware sales go up because everybody is now either a little bit of extra cash from some of those, um, you know, in the U.S., the, the financial incentives that some, that some people received slash being home and having nothing else to do. Shortages. Animal Crossing boom. Animal Crossing Um, so there was a boom in the hardware there, but then I think the poisonous part and perhaps the poisoning of the well that I worry about for the future of the PC industry is the just pure greed to me of, in terms of graphics cards, the cost of components and cards themselves has not dropped down really from those highs in the pandemic driven by shortages. And now to buy a normal graphics card, it's like two, three times the cost of what it was prior to the pandemic. Like, doesn't that hurt 
the entry level people who might want to get involved or is there still a healthy market for not the high end? Like I just worry about sometimes what has happened these last three to four years in particular about the actual like OEM hardware side and building computers. Like is it getting too cost prohibitive now for some people? I mean, that's absolutely a valid worry. And, you know, during the pandemic, we've, I've actually seen two crises because the, the first one I saw was actually back in 2018, where that was kind of the initial crypto boom. Mm. Uh, graphics cards kind of ended up in short supply, and uh, that was the year that I won um, a a computer with a Titan in it. You know, the the mm-hmm. high the Halo product for Nvidia. And at that time, I was like, "Well, Jesus, you know, this is probably more graphics card than I'll ever need. Um, what if I flip it? What's the next tier down? Like, how much money could I make if I just, you know, got a 1080 Ti?" instead of a Titan. And the crunch was so bad at that point that the 1080 Ti was selling for the same amount of money <laughs> as the Titan. And so I was just like, yeah, you know what, never mind. Um, which happily that graphics card lives on in the uh, bunch of computers that I keep in my friend's garage for, for land parties and such. Um, I think you'll find, so the pricing of the high-end cards, and that's probably, and you know, not not disparagingly, uh, Aaron, that's probably where you look when you're looking at hardware. Mm-hmm. Um, that is absolutely a place where NVIDIA saw the gap between what they announced their 30 series cards at and then how much they were selling for during the pandemic and just went, oh, okay, and they just kind that's of the slid that now. price up and said, okay, yeah, then, no, this is what it's worth now, so pay us that. And that is beginning to fall off a little bit because, well, the highest end cards are desired for machine learning and other related applications. Um, The lower end cards, like if they don't show year over year improvement, they're beginning to price them down pretty aggressively Mm. and uh, discount them. So I think, yeah, you know, if if your eyes go right to the, you know, 80 series, 90 series, then it is going to be intimidating. Like I, I, I go to look at a 4080. It's like, oh, it'd be nice to, to really have some oomph. And they don't sell for less than $900. And it's like, <laughs> you know what? I could build a whole game-worthy <laughs> computer for that type of money. Right. So, uh, and that that is kind of the, the nice side of it is that um, there are really good mid-range cards that you can have a really good experience with right now. Yeah. And there's a, a healthy used market. There's a lot of... Um, good lower price platforms available. Um, competition has treated PC gaming very, very well. And for a big chunk of that 15 years that we're talking about, um, there was basically no competition. You had Intel far out in in the lead uh, in the CPU space. You had NVIDIA kind of far out in the lead. There was a little more competition there, but in GPUs, it was still primarily the NVIDIA show. Mm-hmm. And really since AMD kind of came back to the market uh, market with Ryzen, um, there's been trading blows back and forth. You've seen the value proposition improve. So while prices have gone up on the high end, um, I think in the mid, mid-range low end, you can, you can build a killer system for not a lot of money. You can find a killer system at like, uh, you know, honestly, they have a whole stack of them 
at Costco when I go mm. there because, you know, on that suburban life now. And, <laughs> you know, you just buy that off the shelf and you're going to have a pretty good time gaming. So gotcha. I think, I, I think, yeah, it, it is easy to look at the high end and go, wow, that's crazy. But, you know, in PC gaming, that's been happening for years. I, you always know that one guy who just shows up <laughs> and he's got the highest end shit and he's talking a bunch of trash and then he just gets shit on in UT. And it's like, oh, I don't know why you have to describe out, uh, the last time I was at one of your LAN parties <laughs> in detail. But <laughs> I got I got three things I want to add here. Um, yeah. The first is that um, graphics cards have always been a luxury, uh, even back to the especially back to the foundational days of 3D effects. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm not too surprised by the. Uh, the cash grab, I think it's fair to call it, that NVIDIA is making with their high-end cards. But as somebody who's still rocking a 2070, which, you know, by this point is like six years old or something, I'm still playing brand new games at high settings, you know, thanks to things like DLSS and, um, you know, I'm not running a 4K monitor. I have a 2160, or no, sorry, whatever, 1440, but ultra-wide. 2K. Ran mm-hmm. Cyberpunk, great. Yeah, 2K+, plus, you know, because it's got the wider... <laughs> um, and so the second thing is that um, you mentioned a $900 graphics card. And I think this is kind of leading me to the bigger point I want to make, which is that I don't think that that's prohibitive to people playing, getting into PC gaming. That's just prohibitive to them giving NVIDIA all their money. What they're going to do instead probably is like look at cheaper builds using a last gen card and realize, oh, this will still run everything and look good. Or, and I think this is probably more of a prediction for the future, but I'll just throw it in here. I think that PC gaming will become much more synonymous with devices like the Steam Deck, which you can mm. buy the highest top of the line one with incredible performance still is like 600 some dollars. And, you know, if I wanted to buy like a 3080 right now, I'm probably looking at that much money anyway. So I think that for a lot of people, like, you know, they're looking at the value proposition and they're saying like, wow, like this is a portable PC. It's like a switch, but way more powerful. And it lets me access everything on Steam. Like that's, I think that, you know, especially with like a good docking solution, that's not a bad way to, to dip your toe into this market. Uh, and that didn't exist even a few years ago, really. And, and, right. and, you know, NVIDIA had the shield and stuff like that, but this is totally different. A game changer, if you will. Yeah, that, that that's, I completely agree. And that's actually something that w- I will come back to on the next one of my turns um, to kind of revisit. So um, yeah, the Steam Deck is, Really just a fascinating great. piece yeah. of hardware that kind of created a market segment. Yeah. I mean, it, there were some entries there, but like it, it caused an explosion of like new ideas. Yeah. There, that could so. be a story in and of itself for this podcast. Mm-hmm. So why don't we move along to uh, your first observation, Nick? Sure. Um, I, guess I'll start with this one, which is that um, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but I really want to drive this point home. I believe that we are fully beyond the end of the era of meaningful console generations. And we frankly probably have been since the dawn of this blog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, we talked about console generations and how there are different ways to describe them and label them. And I find that it's a bit of a slippery slope into just tedium, the more you try and figure it out. But to my mind, like a meaningful console jump, because I'm old enough to remember this, you know, represented an audiovisual connectivity or interaction pattern kind of sea change. And 
The last time that really happened, I would argue, was when the 32 and 64 bit consoles came out. So the PlayStation, Saturn, Jaguar, uh, (laughs) uh, N64, all that stuff, Uh, 3DO, uh, CDI. I can remember some more of these too. Let's just talk about the CDI for a while, actually. you could argue, you could argue a little bit that with DVDs, the PS2 and Xbox represented maybe the last leap here. Something but, like the Dreamcast, maybe. Oh right, forgot about the Dreamcast. Um, Sorry, but that what what did that offer that wasn't in previous consoles? Like internet connectivity was stock standard with the Xbox. Um, oh wait, that actually that came after. Yeah. Um, I think that was kind of the big thing, right? Internet connectivity, the live service yeah. MMO type games on a console more readily. But to your point, True. I think that was like maybe the, the end of it at that stage. Yeah. The Dreamcast was the beginning of the end in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, <laughs> so many ways. <laughs> sorry, Doug. Uh, and uh, so I just, you know, I was thinking about this because it's like, you know, I, I have a reputation somewhat deserved, not entirely, as being the anti-AAA curmudgeon on this blog. And, uh, you know, again, I'll, I'll just, you know, state my priors. I am skeptical of games that do not try something new with, you know, positive intent. And that's not to say there's anything wrong with those games. I'm just skeptical of them. I approach them with caution because in my experience, I'm much more drawn to novelty and experimentation when it comes to like, when I think about how the value proposition of games that I approach personally. And what I've found is just that like you can take any game really from the PS3, 360 era onward and compare it to any game on Xbox One or sorry, what are we on now? Series X and uh, PlayStation 5 and design language wise, feature set wise, uh, often narrative and game structurally speaking, like from a distance, they look identical. You look at Assassin's Creed 1. And Assassin's Creed, whatever just came out. Thanks. Um, And, you know, that is a bit of a return to form. So maybe that's not the best example. But, you know, you could look at those games. A self-referential loop, to your point, though. Yeah. Like, if I take my glasses off and walk a few feet away from them, I probably couldn't tell the difference. I could watch them for probably about 20 minutes and not tell the difference. And I'm... I'm not trying, this is maybe a bit more of a critique of, you know, AAA game design uh, from companies like Ubisoft than I meant it to be. But what I'm trying to say is that even if you ignore the quality of the experience, if you look at, if you just look at it very analytically, I don't, I don't think that much has really meaningfully changed generation to generation. And um, so I have a couple takeaways from this and I want to hear what you all have to think. But one is just that uh, arguments over which console is best have always been, um, frivolous at best and often just a profound waste of our brain cells um it is important it is interesting to talk about the differences in a you know curious way but to like the console wars died about 30 years ago and that's okay mm-hmm. we can move on um the other thing is that um i think it actually like means that there's even more uh receptiveness in the market to things that change the way we approach play and i think that's why that's really why I think the Switch became such a huge hit. Not just the software library, which, you know, <laughs> Nintendo sold like zero Wii U's and had all this great stuff to <laughs> repackage and sell again, which yeah. is great. Um, but, you know, the way that it was portable or you could dock it, the way that the controller's detached, you can use it in all these fun ways. Uh, you know, it's like 
I think that in the Steam Deck is a great example of this too. It's like an entire gaming PC with like touch input and all these like cool input options and the customizations, all the spirit of PC gaming, but in a brand new form factor. Without I think that's where, yeah, I, I don't think that you can call those generations anymore, but I do think that that's where innovation comes from in a way that it, that's where it moved to. Uh, whereas with Xbox and PlayStation, it's purely about computational power at this point. Yeah, you get like the adaptive triggers and haptic feedback and stuff, but that stuff is really just window dressing. It's like going to a, what do they call it? Like a 4DX movie? I, I never go oh, to Like those, the butt but... kicker seats? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I don't know. That's my take on that. Yeah, I, I really like that, um, that perspective. And it, it coincides, I think, into many of the things we've already talked about and probably will continue to talk about this episode. Um especially technologically speaking, like haven't the generations uh, been uh, lengthening already for several uh, console generations, right? Like each generation seems to be a little bit longer and longer compared to those 80s, 90s, even early 2000s, where it was like every four to five years, you could guarantee a new console would be out. But I don't think that the platform holders continue to see value in that. And I think that just from a financial investment and even just the hardware catch up and and leaps ahead in technological prowess it probably also makes sense to why i I don't know if it's because of that but what we were talking at the beginning in terms of the triple a landscape and how it seems like the last a few generations ago the hardware itself and games themselves sort of got locked into a predefined sort of template what works, they figured it out, all of the developers and studios and console holders. And that's just what we've been seeing now for the last 15 years, those same iterations of the formula. There are, like you said, tweaks, changes, little things here and there. But yeah, I I do feel like in many ways, many of the games we are playing now were the games we played when we started this blog, which I believe you even said earlier. So like, it just seems as if we're sort of stuck in that. And that's probably also related to being risk adverse as the budgets have ballooned for these big type of games that make them the most money. Uh, why would they go out on a limb and be completely changing the formula uh, for something that costs $150 million, $200 million, and they need to make that budget back? They won't, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I do, I do think your comparison there, Nick, to um, with the Assassin's Creed series, could be interpreted as just a <laughs> either a thank you or a, a dunk, depending on the framing of your um, optometrist. Because, <laughs> like, yeah, I got, I got you know ten feet back. I can't tell the difference between any of these games. Like, but, uh, but sincerely, what, do you see a big difference in those games? No, no, no. And that, and that's the thing is that. Um, and I, I do recall very fondly um, seeing a Dreamcast played for the first time in Sears, I think, mm. and seeing the graphical fidelity and kind of going, wow, how does it get any better than this? <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, granted, it, graphics have improved since then, mm-hmm. but that fixation on graphical fidelity, on performance, um, which is important for marketing in the console space is important for EPIN measuring and marketing mm-hmm. in the PC space is anathema to that philosophy of 
well, we want to maximize the market for our games. And yeah, if you look at most titles for the past several years, like uh, tons of them are still coming out on the PS4 and on the Xbox One. And that doesn't really show any sign of light, uh, lightening up because why would you... The, the people who still have those huge. consoles, like, yeah, do you not want that money? And since there's now kind of a unified architecture, and then something I'm curious about in the future is if we'll see that shift to more ARM-based things like the Switch, you know, change in processor architecture. But, mm -hmm. you know, fundamentally, the Xbox One and the PS4 were the same hardware mm -hmm. and it was an amd apu so amd cpu amd gpu um the playstation 5 and the xbox x same thing they are all amd silicon they use the same architecture porting games back and forth for the large studios is i think easier than it's ever been because again you don't have to rewrite mm -hmm. whole elements of the engine and and then on top of that you add the fact that you have unreal engine and godot uh, i think unity is less likely to be a thing in the future but uh you know you have this software suite for mid and small developers that enables you to build the game once and then you just tweak it to fit these other platforms so yeah i i think that you know that it is likely that Sony and Microsoft are going to continue to have, and you know, excuse the term, but a Halo game that is going to be something that shows off the graphical capabilities, and they will continue to use those things in their marketing copy. Mm -hmm. But again, why would you leave out part of the install base? Why would you leave money on the table when you're talking a small amount more development expense to add millions of potential installs? to to your revenue it it just doesn't from a business standpoint it doesn't make sense and what you'll see and i mean i likely it's where we've been is that pretty much all of that is just marketing it's just yeah. drumming up comparison and division in order to get people to say oh well no i'm gonna get the xbox because it has better graphics now i'm gonna get the playstation because it has better well, graphics. that's sort and of it's meaningless it's actually a very interesting thing and i want to mentioned something else taking it back to your original statement nick but as a sidetrack yeah didn't it feel like as we were coming up as we were growing up the console fights sure i i remember there being technological stats from said marketing type sheets thrown about you know uh processing and such but it was also a game aspect right like which franchises were on which consoles would often be more, I think, of the deciding factor of which one you liked the most, who you were mm -hmm. the fanboy of, right? Um, but now, when I think about those consoles, as you said, with the similar GPU and CPU, the the way that game development works now, where uh, just by necessity, games are multi-platform to make that um, development cost back, uh, in part, when you think of what are the bandied about platform um, fanboy sort of toxic things to argue about now are so they're so fragmented they're so bespoke like say on the playstation 5 i am fortunate to have had the experience of having a 4k tv with 120 hertz uh, refresh rate 
and um, play as an exclusive game example the last few Spider-Man games, Spider-Man 2 being the most recent one this year, uh, in that 120 hertz mode. And it is amazing. Like, it is amazing that level of technical fidelity and those features that are only available to you if you have the right kind of television set. So, like, not everybody can experience that, but then that becomes the way that now console sort of um, determinism is argued about online for things that not even the whole general audience can experience. So it's become less mass market in some ways to have these yeah. things that keep people divided and it really doesn't fucking matter. And like you <laughs> said earlier, that Spider-Man game is definitely going to be on the PC a year or two from now and everybody yep. can play it that way. They can even play it on the Steam Deck like they've been able to play the last two Spider-Man games that came out on PC. So yeah, the, the, the whole console generation thing seems to be even more perverted than it was back then in, in, at a certain level. Yeah, I guess like the last thing I want to say that uh, off of what you just said is that like it ties into what we were talking about with PC hardware too and the price of entry there for high quality uh, graphics cards. Um, it feels like the ceiling is what keeps moving. And I feel like, you know, I, I, what my brain is telling me to say is that like it's, it's the same whale hunting mentality that you saw with mobile games and now with live service games on consoles and PC. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the market is just chasing the really rich people. And, I, you know, the, the the pessimist in me wants to point to that and, you know, compare that chart to like the widening income inequality chart and do the whole office meme of like they're the same picture. <laughs> But maybe I'm getting a little bit too in the weeds. <laughs> I mean, I I think we could go a lot deeper there, but I would say just as one final comparison, you've seen that from a, a different industry that I follow and I'm interested in, and is uh, cameras, consumer cameras. Mm-hmm. That has very much become the case the last decade or so, where that higher end person, that whale, as you pointed out correctly to borrow that app terminology and others is is absolutely who's being targeted now because of course that's the person that though there may be fewer of them they will spend enough money to not really matter what you know the average joe or jane is able to afford and that seems to be where the whole unfortunately capitalist mentality is going in a lot of these industries it makes sense that it's become a problem in gaming too Mm -hmm. um I think we should probably keep it going. Uh, Aaron, are you ready to uh, share your next one? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it sort of dovetails in what we were just talking about um, pretty well. But one thing that I feel, again, pessimistically, is that toxic fandom has only gotten worse in the last uh, decade and a half. And it feels like there's really no end in sight or way to solve that. Um, Where I'm coming from in terms of Quoting that is uh, there was just a, um, a report on gamesindustry.biz at the end of last month from, uh, I believe, Unity puts out like a yearly kind of toxicity and multiplayer report that uh, surveys developers. Anyway, this survey that was reported on said 53% of developers in the industry feel that toxicity is getting worse, just the fandom is getting worse. Um there have been some kind of attempts in the last year in particular in 2023 to have technical solutions for this, like dumping players. I know these are things that have happened in the past two online and multiplayer games, but 
trying to dump players who say cheat as a form of toxicity into their own little instance uh, where they just are fighting against each other, cheating against each other to try to separate them out from the player base. Uh, there was a bigger initiative that I read about um, that Ubisoft had actually created a sort of an internal monitoring team for uh, observing potentially dangerous or harmful behavior uh, online in their games and communities. Um, and even though it was, I think they said 0.01% of these cases were ever reported to the police, that is a potential end result of these this new team that's cross-company uh, within Ubisoft in particular. So like and there are initiatives elsewhere and funds and groups and support groups to try to deal with this whole toxicity that exists within gaming. Um, but, you know, when we talk about the last 15 years, of course, and we talked about this at the time, we think of things like Gamergate and what's happened before and after that. Uh, and how big that has really just changed, I think, culture in general. Um, yeah, I, I just feel so pessimistic for the future, and it just seems as if gaming in particular is driving a lot of this online negativity, and despite all these best efforts, I just don't see it getting any better anytime soon, and that's really depressing. I'm going to actually go ahead and combine... Um, one of mine with this because uh, my observation was basically gamers are regrettably still gamers. <laughs> um, I know that, you know, we're not huge. Uh, not huge Penny Arcade fans. <laughs> I am not a fan. Uh, maybe 15 true. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, longer than 15 years. I mean, I, started I, mean, I think it was the last time I read school, one of their but comics, but yeah. I, I will say that um, their March 19th, 2004 um, comic putting forward the uh, John Gabriel's greater internet fuckwall theory <laughs> remains uncontested to this day. That, you know, normal person plus anonymity plus audience equals total fuckwad. I don't think that normal person is necessarily the right term in that, you know, this is a self-selecting population, but yeah, it is, it is kind of distressing that, you know, even today, a good, well, more than 20 years since I started playing multiplayer games, I can log into, you know, say Starcraft 2. And for that brief window that I'm connected to all chat before I turn it off again, because Blizzard does not let you turn it off permanently, um, I see some very distressing things from some very troubling people. And that's without fail. That the, the amount of toxicity and outright bigotry, the willingness of the gaming community to lob death threats mm -hmm. at people over a perceived offense for delaying a game or, you know, including a female character or God knows what it continues to be distressing. Now I will say that probably part of this is the fact that as we have aged, the demographic continue. Well, I mean, you know, to a certain extent it continues to kind of slurp up young men who are, interested in technology and spend a lot of time online and everything. And there is a certain degree of intrinsic toxicity there 
that gets internally reinforced. But yeah, it's or even just it's now, just teenage boys seem to be using places like Fortnite as just a regular hangout. They aren't even perhaps the ones that have predilections like us at that age of, like you said, interested in technology or even, you know, the stereotype of being more introverted. But everybody, say, in an eighth grade class is playing Fortnite now, and they're all saying the same level of stupid, racist, sexist, and so on shit in the chat with each other. And I mean, no, this is bigger than just games, bullying and online harassment on social media is a huge thing for younger kids. But yeah, it, it seems like even just everybody's doing it now because everybody's playing games online more than they even used to. Right, right. And I do think in some ways, like I have seen plenty of evidence that younger generations, you know, Gen Z and whatever they're going to call the next one, marketers. Gen are Alpha, alpha apparently. Oh, God. Starting so over. Anyway, um, <laughs> point being, you know, that as a whole, they are generally kind and sensitive and, you know, way more on the ball with things such as, you know, being LGBTQ or, or what have you than, you know, than we were mm-hmm. and certainly way more than Gen X or the further back you go. But there is something about, you know, not necessarily showing your face or in the case of streamers having a heated gamer moment, um, showing your face to, you know, several thousand people, whatever, um, that causes people to spew basically sewage. And, you know, I, I, I try not to, you know, I'm, I can't be on a high horse, you know, I have certainly said my share (laughs) of toxic things in the past um, I think once I became cognizant of that, I started trying to bend it toward the absurd, uh, which has worked out very well, um, you know, and it actually kind of works effectively as trash talk, too, because people get kind of upset in Battlefield when you tell them, like, oh, let's make out when you knife them. <laughs> um, but all that to say that, yeah, it's, you know, it's not going away. And I can think of so many instances where. It's like, oh, you know, some somebody said X. And it's like, okay, well, that that's a shitty thing to say, whatever. Uh, and then the resulting wave out of the gaming community of people being the worst people imaginable has continued to dishearten me. It's, it's why I don't self-describe as a gamer other than ironically, because <laughs> that's not going away, and it doesn't seem to be going it's, away. It's all wretched. And it's not going away and it's not getting better. And I think I really want to draw a clear line between um, adolescents who are trying to kind of uh, find the boundaries and experiment with crossing them and experiment with like understanding their identity and expressing that and figuring out how they fit into their friend group, what their kind of role is. Um, And adults. And the adults who are, you know, hold hateful ideologies and go online to celebrate them and to hurt other people, like very specifically with the intention of like hurting people and spreading hate and awful shit. And I'm not trying to let teenagers off the hook. If you say something bad, if you have ill intent with what you're doing, then, you know, you should be called out for it and you should learn from that and you should correct your behavior. You should show, you should demonstrate growth. And that's true if you're 10 or if you're 50 or whatever. Um, that's 
you know, that's kind of simple, I think. But um, what I find a bit distressing is that there is, you know, like Aaron said, there's been a uh, the rise of like the trust and safety um, discipline within gaming, which kind of originated in tech, which is kind of where I got my start uh, as, as a um, postgraduate worker. Um, and, uh, but the, the investment is so meager, like when a company like Blizzard can't filter out, you know, offensive, basic offensive shit from general chat in one of their flagship games, it shows that this stuff is not being taken very seriously at the top levels. And, um, at the same time, you know, I think that at, you can always draw a line from what people are doing in a public space to what's happening in other parts of the public space, uh, the world that we live in. And, uh, I, you know, games, competition, sports, they have a long history of trash talk, but I want to be really clear. We're not talking about trash talk here. I mean, like knifing someone saying, oh, let's make out. That's, that's trash talk to me. Yeah, that's fine. It's video game trash talk. Yeah. And it's funny. It's absurd. And it probably freaks people out, but not like in a, in a bad way, more of like a, did you just say that <laughs> kind of way, <laughs> uh, which is a service, a public service. Um, uh, <laughs> But yeah, I, I don't know. It has not gotten better. I'll say that much. And uh, yeah, I don't know if it will. I, I think the last thing I'll add is, you know, my perspective now on this is forward thinking as a parent, right? Um, with two boys that are now very young uh, and are just becoming aware of video games through what I show them. And of course, as a parent at uh, with children of this age, entirely control their exposure to things related to playing games like my son uh, my oldest he heard about sonic the hedgehog from a friend at school before i'd even ever told him what that was or he'd seen it i'm so, so course, sorry yeah <laughs> i know so like as a parent you you grapple with that fact that they will of course be exposed to things and ideas beyond you um but actually palpably holding a controller doing things with games is a journey I'm, I am totally controlling for them now and for a very long time to come. But of course there will be that point with whatever we're talking about, the PlayStation eight or some shit that, um, they log online and they play a game with friends, probably Fortnite four. And like, I no longer control what happens there. So how have I prepared them? So I think that's just, again, in all of this, probably comes back to in a very large part how have parents educated themselves about video games the culture the tools available to them in a sort of like just localized trust and safety way uh, i think those have made improvements in the last 15 years uh, yeah the nintendo has a pretty famous like switch app like you can actually access parental controls on an app on your phone for the switch and control your child's access in a very Nintendo way, but those child controls have now existed for several console generations. And in my experience, working for Xbox support for a few years, parents by and large never use them. And they would wonder how their kid either on one level of toxicity got access to their credit card and bought a bunch of stuff or why some weirdo was talking to their child. So again, I think it's like now me as a parent and somebody who has been involved in games interested in games and very educated about games most of his adult life and childhood i can now see this path where hopefully other than me raising good kids and teaching them values and ways to behave and carry themselves even to the online sphere 
I'm also going to be very deeply involved in tweaking the consoles to give them hopefully a, as safe as possible space as I can when they are at least in my home and I can control that. Yeah, and I, I think the, the note earlier that, you know, ultimately it's being fueled by the adults, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I, I think back to to admittedly browsing 4chan in my late teens and, and early 20s and everything. And I remember I found, uh, the, the, you know, this is kind of self-indicting, but I found racism hilarious because I thought it was ironic. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that it was a joke that we were all in on that it was like, isn't it hilarious that somebody could think it's not hurting like, anyone. That's, it's just that's a joke. absurd. Yeah, right. Exactly. And it was only over time that I, I grew to realize that no, this is not a joke for a lot of the people participating and for the ones who are, they are at risk, like who do think it's a joke. They're at risk of being kind of steered toward earnest belief in that, in that form of ideology. So I don't know what the solution is. I certainly don't favor, you know, drastically uh, clamping down on a state level to people's access to the internet or anything like that. I, I think it ultimately does have to be both, um, you know, both the parents being responsible, talking to their kids, sharing in um, digital and online experiences with them, kind of giving them a framework for how to process things, how to know, um, you know, what's right and what's wrong. And then on the other side, honestly, you know, not to get too far afield here, but I, I joke, and I, it is mostly, eh, it's like 55% joke, but like being kind, like, you know, I didn't get along with other kids right away when I was little. Like, I got bullied a fair amount. And that caused me to assess, okay, how do I interact with people to be friends with them? How, how do I not be the weirdo in the room mm. and instead, like, bond with people so that they'll hang out with me. And that was a valuable experience for me. And I'm not saying that the answer to all this is bullying, but I think that (laughs) having real world friendships, having people that, you know, and you know, it doesn't even have to be like out of online necessarily, but like having people that, you know, and trust that you then share those experiences with is, is so important for kids to kind of draw them away from the more toxic cesspits that exist in this community. Cause th- those don't seem like they're going anywhere. Yeah. yeah. There's uh, one thing I want to add here real quick, which is just that I think the big difference between 15 years ago and now is that the public sphere has expanded to fully encapsulate gaming. Every mm-hmm. console has social features baked in. Everything is always online. Many games, everything from Splatoon with it's like cool drawing mechanic in the public uh, plazas to like Fortnite with its transmedia who knows what the hell they're doing kind of stuff where you can just hang out with your friends after school um it's all become basically internet forums and um the way we keep you know the way we minimize and reduce hate speech and the way we like uh hold each other accountable is to be more socially engaged to be more engaged with our communities to to recognize that we have individual and shared responsibilities to 
you know, determine what is acceptable speech and what is not, you know, to say nothing of, you know, what is legal speech or not, that's completely separate. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, you know, I think that we have seen, uh, generally little improvement, if any, arguably, uh, quite the opposite in this space over the last 15 years in terms of the, the tenor of online, uh, harassment and bullying and, uh, yeah, I hope it gets better. It's going to take a lot more work, though. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I'd like to jump in and uh, say one of mine pretty quickly. I think this is only this. I think this will be like a yep, and then we move on. <laughs> um, I just want to. I think that I feel very strongly about this one actually, which is that I think the industry has never been this conservative in probably forty years since the Atari crash. Um. I mean this mostly financially, but I also mean this in terms of kind of the content of games and the philosophy of uh, the the zeitgeist of games that is being put out, especially at the big budget level. Um, yeah. But to, to focus more on granular things, like um, this has always been an unstable industry to work in. You hear a lot about people moving from company to company over the years with a few notable exceptions, like every now and then a company like Firaxis or Nintendo will spring up and people can make a career there. But um, shifting between companies, uh, getting laid off as a uh, kind of like the de rigueur uh, outcome of game development, like expecting to have to go job, job hunting after you ship a big game and make a lot of money for the company. Uh, it's only worse now. Um, uh, sequels and IP spinoffs and things like that are so they choke out so much of the spotlight now to a degree that, you know, We've seen coming for many, many years, but it's worse now than it's ever been, I would argue. Uh, And uh, yeah, all the while, um, there's these boom bust cycles, especially in the indie space where people who are really risking a lot to be participating in this market are even more uh, kind of on a roller coaster of ups and downs and uh, rolling the dice in the hopes of getting a publishing deal and hoping the publisher promotes their game well and then like hoping that the uh the fickle marketplaces uh give the game a chance to pick up an audience uh i just i think it's never been worse and uh it's probably not going to get better for a little while i totally agree and i think i kind of come back to some of those sentiments in my one of my predictions my prediction for the next 15 years so i think we'll definitely Hmm. come back to that Mm -hmm. cool uh yeah aaron do you have your last uh takeaway to share uh sure i'll do it quick because i think spencer definitely have you done a second one already spencer uh my i lumped mine in with yours okay that okay was, um that online spaces uh still be pretty toxic i <laughs> i also think this will be kind of just a quick like uh agreement but maybe more disc- discussion um than i think but uh consolidation Right, especially in the last mm-hmm. few years, um, but that I think is one of the biggest stories. Um, the last fifteen years of what's happened in the industry. I mean, we know those of us who follow it, and those of us who may be listening or even tangentially interested in the industry, know, of course, about the Microsoft and Activision deal this past year and all that drama of an almost seventy billion dollar deal. But uh, Sony has been on a spree of buying up companies. Last year, they bought Bungie for three. billion I believe Um, but on the other side of that same coin 
when the biggest studios, publishers, companies have been grabbing up independence as much as they can. Um, to me, the other side of that is also 2023. This you know year we're talking about is our 15th anniversary has been a year of severe contraction and layoffs in the industry. Um, even as kind of, I think Nick was pointing to with his last, last, uh, thought that that consolidation hasn't worked out well for all of the players. Uh, we mentioned Embracer group earlier on, but them in particular, I think they've laid off 900 or so people, almost a thousand people this year alone. They've closed studios that even had like a long standing pedigree in the industry, like Volition. Um, they've canceled several games. So this consolidation, which again, wasn't invented in the game industry, just like these rising budgets and all these other things we've been talking about. This isn't unique to games. This is stuff that happens all throughout industries, focus on the capitalistic pursuits uh, that we know so dearly. Um, but this year has been such a, a very, very stark contrast in terms of this lead up um, the last several to buying studios, consolidating, giving these studio uh, um, publishers like Microsoft and Sony c- platform holders too so much more power. And then we're seeing now that ever, some people are getting left out in the cold, and there have been so many other beyond Embracer closures of studios, layoffs, canceled projects, and the indiv- individual as a developer in this industry. It's never been a more terrifying time, I would gather though I myself am not a developer um, and I could even imagine Nick would have something to say there from somebody who had been trying to get into the industry for uh, much of this last part of the year too. But yeah, just consolidation um, clearly is going to continue, but it clearly is not also working out very well for everybody. Yeah. Um, I have one that actually dovetails into this really nicely. Uh, Spencer, if you don't mind if I jump the line here. Um, Yeah, I think that the consolidation uh, pattern we're seeing and the layoffs and the closing of studios and um, even moderately successful games uh, being grounds for mass layoffs and restructuring and things like that. Um, My takeaway from the last 15 years is that this is my last one is that uh, the game industry is not your friend. Hmm. Um, they they really, the marketing teams, the advertisers really want you to feel like you have a personal relationship with them. They're all doing the Nintendo Direct model of direct marketing. They want to get you on newsletters. They want to loop you in through the console, uh, news bold and features and things like that. And they want you to engage on social media. They want you to identify, literally to identify with their products, with their IP to a degree that you are surrendering agency and critical thought. And I don't mean in the sense of like, you're becoming a zombie, like this is some like, or like this is some sort of they live style, uh, <laughs> uh, seizing of society Maybe and blinding us 15. to it. Yeah. Give it time. Uh, I just mean that they're, they're predatory. They are predatory in how they market to you. They're predatory in how they treat their workers, how they treat their subcontractors, how they, um, say one thing and do another when it comes to like their business practices. And I think between this and the consolidation stuff, it's just like, it is a toxic hostile space. And, uh, you know, I would like to be able to contribute to 
making it better in some way, but that the opportunities to actually meaningfully do that are so few and far between that I'm not counting on it. Uh, Cause mm-hmm. most of the jobs are just like feeding the machines that are grinding everything down into a kind of fine paste. And uh, there's no art without rough edges. That's my statement. <laughs> and he rests. Yeah. Um, no, well said. Uh, I, yeah, I, I am, I would be so afraid. And again, you've talked about this so much in your own, uh, personal work and on this side of, uh, and through the projects that you have been able to accomplish and put out independently yourself or with, um, teams, uh, you've wanted to be in the industry and wanted to hopefully be that steward of some change, but were you in the industry now, I can imagine how terrifying it would be that you probably might have even been part of a layoff at some point this year. Um, it, it's just, I for, for an industry that fought so hard in the semi-recent past to be considered an art form, um, it's just, you know, truly a joke. Uh, and like you said, they aren't your friend, that it's really not about the art and hasn't been for a long time. There are still artistic expressions in games, and I know we've been really focused a lot on the AAA side, the biggest side of the business in this conversation, um, but they are often the trendsetters and the, the holders of the zeitgeist. Um, but it really is not any, even more, you can pretend that it's really not about the art. It's just about the business and that business has been extremely ruthless and cutthroat. Um, and I'm very worried about what happens over the next 15 years. If you're just a casual player, it's going to be fine. You're going to play games, you know, continue to do that and not really have to give a shit. But if you do care about the people and the industry made of people, um, it just seems like it's uh, uh, apocalyptic and it's not going to get better anytime soon. Yeah, and I guess I actually slightly disagree with one point there, or maybe I would just spin it a little different, which is that I think if you are a casual player of games, you are actually going to notice. You're going to notice that games are mm. less interesting, less experimental, less have less to say or feel too samey or they are too unapproachable because they are becoming you know more you know hostile communities that kind of stuff maybe that's the modern warfare 3 problem yeah i think so i think that when the people making something are not treated well and they're not happy the end product is diminished because ultimately you know all media is about human connection and the more that business dictates how things work and tries to min max everything Mm -hmm. the less human contact you can really i think uh find in that media see the same thing in like streaming shows sure. uh the movie market etc I, I think um you know we could boil this down and you know it's a return to form for us too the problem is capitalism <laughs> but uh well and if it's accurate if the shoe fits this yeah. the site has been mm-hmm. a 15 year journey for us to grapple with capitalism i think in, in its many forms it should have been a think tank. <laughs> we have said that a number of times. We've got the next 15 to look forward to, Spencer. Yeah, please yeah. look forward to our next book, A Gamer's History of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it'll be finally my, my time to cite uh, Jeremy from Pure Ownage in, uh, in an academic context. 
Um, do we have any other kind of thoughts on, on that last point? Um, or do we want to move to some of our predictions now for the next decade and a half? Well, I have just the one last oh, yes. Please. Uh, observation. Uh, and, you know, I'll keep it short and sweet because of the well, time and so forth. Um, the rise of the Steam Deck both, you know, created this kind of new hardware niche that is currently thriving. There's a lot of really cool handheld PCs that are, are quite powerful now, which is awesome. Uh, but it also made it the year of Linux. It's finally here. <laughs> Because uh, a lot of people may not realize the Steam Deck runs on Linux underpinnings and the work that has gone into translating Windows games into Linux and letting them run consistently is remarkable. You know, the Steam Deck's compatibility isn't 100%, but most new games that come out are playable out of the box, if not playable within a couple weeks on a handheld device running an alternative operating system. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really cool because that is um, increasing choice uh, and giving people more options. And I think if, uh, and this will touch on my predictions when we get there, uh, you know, if Apple decides that they want to make uh, games on the Mac a thing, then it will kind of further raise the tide for everybody. I'm pretty sure, I don't want to make this a prediction, but <laughs> I don't think Apple will do that. I've, I've been waiting with slightly bated breath my whole life for that. But um, at least... I you... also doubt it, we will come back. But they have games. Yeah. It's through Apple Arcade subscription. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's what they... Yeah. I think they called that a day yeah. after they started that, so... I mean, plainly Google and Amazon both did as well. So, you know, there's there's been some uh, jumping out of the market going on there between mm -hmm. the death of Stadia and uh, Amazon shuttering a whole bunch of studios and everything. So mm -hmm. it's unlikely Apple will get back in. But like yeah. I said, we'll we'll touch on that again here in a minute. I do think that Linux compatibility stuff is massive and cannot be understated or overstated rather. I think it's like... Because like that's functionally the same as what it would take to make a brand new PC game run on the Mac because of the shared kind of underlying kernel, and um, I think that you know Valve many years ago, even ten years ago, was talking all about Linux and Steam OS and all their ideas and how to like I don't know I'm not like a much of a PC programmer, but you know get DLLs and things converted over to run in Linux so that games uh, run at close to or equal to even in some cases native windows performance and they're doing it and they're doing it on a handheld and i think that that's yeah. like very promising for what the future of gaming hardware and software uh could look like yeah i, I was very bullish on steam's efforts 10 years ago and i looked like a fool so i am yeah, they've again now vindicated I always thought they'd get there. <laughs> Valve has so much money and like the smartest people working for them. That's true. And it's, uh, they, they got some edges. That honestly, the, 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 the deck and um, that market now is more interesting than whatever a Half-Life 3 probably would have been anyway. So, you know. Yeah. I read the summary of what it could have been and yeah, I'd rather have the Steam Deck. <laughs> um, 
Okay, we're back from a break. Um, I definitely am not choking on a bag of peanuts. Uh, and we're ready to uh, jump into our forward-looking predictions from here on out. Uh, I interpreted this as just predictions for the future, not necessarily the, the next 15 years, but, you know, that's totally fine uh, either way. Um, so Aaron asked us each to prepare one. Uh, I prepared five. I don't know if that's okay or not. Banned. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I'll just ask, uh, how about Spencer? Do you want to kick this off? Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually going to relate directly to uh, what we were talking about. I, I have two instead of one, but, you know, I don't have <laughs> Take that, Aaron. So we, um, you could tell we were all like students who probably appreciated extra credit at some point in our academic lives. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so my prediction for the next however many years, hopefully less than 15, we'll see. Uh, is that we are going to see across gaming in terms of the hardware a, a shift in mentality and whether like this is probably not going to come internally from corporations it's more likely to come from the regulatory side of things but the fact of the matter is that gaming hardware in general video gaming hardware is massively power inefficient like mm-hmm. the Computers of today and consoles of today are going to be viewed as the gas guzzlers, as the, you know, 60s and 70s muscles, muscle cars are, where there are still passionate fan bases around them, but they're considered outmoded and overkill and kind of ridiculous. Um, a good example for the, the present right now is that for the top tier gaming GPU, the NVIDIA 4090, uh, GeForce 4090. That will pull by itself in the neighborhood of four to 500 watts of power. <laughs> and then you have uh, Intel CPUs where if you um, un- like basically uncap them, let them draw as much power as possible, they do perform the best for games, but you have a processor that by itself is pulling 250 to 300 watts. Mm. That is insane. That like that CPU by itself draws more power than the first gaming computer I constructed, <laughs> and probably the first several, realistically. So I mean, that's that's like running like how many space heaters at once? <laughs> <laughs> well, space heaters actually draw. It gets into a whole thing, but it is still <laughs> okay. very close to. Like, you know, you, you could put together a gaming system that is pulling, you know, 700 plus watts by itself. None of these and that is in the territory of a small space. I have an Energy Star logo on them, to put it another way. Precisely, precisely. At the same time, in the past several years, um, I have had, personally speaking, more fun trying to tweak my PC for efficiency rather than for raw output, where if you undervolt and like reduce power while still maintaining stability, then you can see improved performance and reduced power draw and certain changes in architecture are going to to continue to further that. So I think what we're going to see um, with regulatory pressure, with maybe the handful of corpos realizing, Oh, it's going to be awful difficult to sell things to displaced and otherwise dead people on a, a heating planet. They'll try. Um, Oh, they they sure will try, but I, I'm hoping for you know maybe a more 
holistic of like, oh, maybe if we don't do that, then uh, we'll have more customers. In any case. First time uh, for everything. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, we're going to see a move from emphasizing raw power to power efficiency. Um, and and a, an excellent example of that is, well, on the one hand, you have like a high-end desktop that will pull that much power by itself. You have the Steam Deck that sips power mm-hmm. comparatively. Like that processor pulls a maximum of 30 watts for itself and the graphics. And wow. it gives a great experience playing games. So I think we're going to see more of that. We're going to see more of that move towards how much can you get out of a system per watt than how much can you get out if you're just like connecting a small reactor to it. Um, I think another important component of that is going to be uh, more use of alternative architectures. Uh, Most gaming devices, Mm -hmm. PC, PlayStation, uh, Xbox are uh, x86 based which not to get too far into the technical details is an architecture that came about in the late seventies, early eighties and has their IBM compatible machines. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it has been used continually and amended and updated and so forth. I don't think that architecture is going away. What I think we're going to see is more hybrid architectures that use x86 cores for raw performance and then arm or, uh, potentially uh, risk cores for efficiency and possibly maybe just arm. I mean that Apple has shown that there is performance to be gained out of that while remaining efficient. Uh, again, mm-hmm. if they cared about games at all, that'd be really cool. Uh, but they do not <laughs> seem to other than, I guess you can play resident evil on the $1,500 iPhone now. So, you know, that's something. Yeah. Um, so that is, that is kind of my first prediction is that we are going to see, a shift towards efficiency as kind of the, the MO for hardware. And it's going to be less about raw frames. It's going to be, Oh, I pulled, I, I get this many frames and my whole system draws a hundred Watts or I get this much battery life. Well, it's mm-hmm. interesting. I like that. I wonder if um, in that direction, some of the, Last few years with the whole crypto boom, it was the canary in the coal mine for that too, because we constantly were being told as crypto was rising and then now, of course, falling in more cases than not, um, the, the, the power needed to create um, that currency. And of course, the gaming world had been involved in that, uh, as we talked about earlier with the pandemic and the hardware and GPUs and all that. But yeah, it seems as if um, this awareness of having computers running unfettered uh, without sort of any, as you said, regulatory controls on how much power is being used. And as we, uh, as of this recording, the most recent climate report was coming out uh, today and the news is dire. You know, eventually at some point, a lot of these levers and um, buttons, levers will have to be pulled, buttons will have to be pushed from governments to try to reduce power consumption wherever possible. And this consumer technology space seems like pretty ripe for that sort of um, change in the future. So it's I mean, interesting. Not, not to be overly cynical, it is easier to go after consumers than it is to go after corpse. Clearly. And yeah. so I do think that you'll see the pressure there and then eventually that's going to translate to, um, you know, to server farms and so forth. 
you know, we, we have seen the more or less the collapse of crypto. It does still exist. It is still a thing. Um, but most of that computational power has been turned to the likes of large language models and machine learning. Mm -hmm. And they are similarly power hungry and inefficient. And, you know, I see potential. I see hope for those technologies to improve life. Maybe not under this economic system, but in the longer term, it's going to have to come with a great increase in efficiency. And we've seen some of innovation on that on the consumer side. We've seen some innovation on that on the data center side with, uh, you know, using uh, instead of installing things that consume power to keep everything cool, you install a system that uses that waste heat to heat buildings or to heat swimming pools or that type of thing. Um, and I think that we are going to see eventually that also come to the, the server space as well, because, you know, it's cheaper to operate a data center if you're pulling less power. So you need something that is efficient to be kind of the, the core of your servers to do that. Um, so, yeah, and, the, the, you know, I have a more hopeful tone, I will say, with both of mine. <laughs> I do think we're going to see that sooner rather than later, that uh, efficiency will start being optimized as a selling point. Um, you know, maybe you will still see people running Intel uh, 13th and 14th gen processors to basically roll coal in a certain sense. But <laughs> uh, I, I think that most people are going to prefer that, you know, you don't have a hot, loud thing belching out heat next to you I, while you're playing games. Sure, but this is... Sorry, just... This has always been the, the power struggle with uh, hardware and electronics. Like it's always been like people have always wanted more efficient hardware since the 80s, the 70s, probably even. Mm -hmm. And uh, people have always wanted to spend less money on their electricity bills. Um, the problem, I think, is that overall consumption will continue to increase. And the there's just so much money and interest in building more server farms and getting that money to pay for manufacturing and then like flooding that hardware with software and plugging services in. That's why that, you know, we've seen this rapid pivot from cryptocurrency processing to NFTs for a hot second. Thank God that's <laughs> over to, uh, like you mentioned, LLMs, AI type stuff, mm -hmm. these heavy mass computational things, um, serverless code powering so much of, you know, infrastructure and services these days. And so I hope, I, I, I have no doubt that efficiency will be prioritized as it has been before. But I, I would be absolutely shocked under our, our growth predicated economy if like um, barring, you know, war or uh, mass uprising, uh, if overall uh, pollution from th this industry will ever uh, decrease. That's fair. Hate to be too like cynical, said, but. I'm trying to strike a hopeful tone, but, uh, you know, well, sorry, to, sorry to intervene. <laughs> no, we are, we are trying to steer the cruise ship by leaning real hard on the deck. I'll so add I then a, uh, uh, oh, let me tell you about cruise ships. <laughs> yes, sorry. Very good for the environment. I live in Alaska. I know about cruise ships. Trust <laughs> yes, me. you do. I will say that, uh, you talking about rolling coal on a computer level gave me some terrifying images of, um, some real hardcore douchebag PC owners with truck nuts on their tower. <laughs> oh God. Uh, I, have, I personally have not seen that, but it has to exist somewhere. <laughs> My next build. If you're maybe. rolling coal on your gaming PC, you might kind of just end up killing yourself on accident. <laughs> yeah. So uh, maybe don't do that. Yeah, make sure you have a fan running in the room or something. <laughs> or just invest in an arm system. Yeah, or, or, or just don't do that. I, I don't know. Yeah. 
Uh, Aaron, do you want to share yours? Do you have just the one? Yeah, do you want to save it? Uh, just the one. I stuck to the assignment uh, that I created. Um, yeah, Amateur. it's very, it, it is optimistic, actually. Uh, I don't really have anything else to back it up other than my prediction is, um, and I'll say in the next 15 years, hopefully it's not that long. But I think that the game industry uh, efforts to unionize will be successful in the long term. Um, I don't really have any evidence for that. <laughs> uh, I think it's um, also possibly at risk of not happening. But I do think that in addition to what we talked about with this year, 2023, um, being a year of stark um, horrifying losses in terms of jobs and careers and studios and um, just as an individual in this industry, one of the toughest on record, um, there have been steady attempts to unionize. And while we know that that is not a cure-all for corporate overlords um, and unionized workers have even been pushed out of places like BioWare recently, um, and it, it, it's not the end of the fight, I think that in addition to the last several years the reporting being done by some of the best um, journalists in, in the business focusing on the industry on, in terms of crunch and the awful conditions it takes to create these big AAA games. There's been a steady drumbeat to get us to this point where it seems like we might be at the precipice of unionization really picking up steam. Uh, outside of games, there's never been a better time to try to recoup some of those unionized and unionization efforts in just America as a country since things took a dire turn in the 70s um, and anti-union efforts were so successful. It just feels like, I, I think, over the next several years, if you are an individual creating video games, especially if you're younger and you're coming up and you're in this industry, you're not going to want to take that shit for very long. Um, and while that doesn't mean it's going to be an easy fight, I think that that is my hopeful, um, belief in, in this next decade and a half is we will, it will be more of the rule than the exception at that point. Um, that's my hope. I really hope you're right about this one. I think it's essential. Yeah. I, I'm hoping we all unionize personally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, yeah, my own career job life right now definitely makes me wish I was in a union. So, you know, um, yeah. And as I said, and as we all know, you know, if you're clear eyed, you know that unions aren't perfect, but they are the only yep. way to protect you in large part from the ever increasing greed of especially large companies that um, will do whatever they can to ensure their profits increase. Um and in the game industry, it is seemingly one of the worst and most toxic arenas to be just a, a worker um, and to try to make a living and keep your employment uh, in these companies. And Crunch, again, seems to be uh, not a, an entirely unique thing, right? Especially in software development in the tech industry. You know, people are abused in that way, too. But um, I just really really think that the next generation of people coming up and developing games, they're going to be less tolerant. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's what we'll see. 
Yeah, until they start acquiring mortgages and having children, and then yeah. they start being really afraid of, you know, losing their jobs. It's important to do this when you're able to, and, you know, obviously solidarity is crucial, but um, yeah, you also have to strike while the iron's hot, and I think that right now the iron is hot, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I also think, you know, we should all be in unions. <laughs> I yeah. mean, unless you love having an autocrat tell you everything you need to do in order to uh, not starve and die, Um you know, that's up to you, I guess. Yeah, if you're, if you're listening to this right now, uh, General Strike, you know, just, yeah. just throwing that out there. <laughs> just saying those words. It works for the entertainment in industry. I mean, every industry, really. Yeah, that, yeah. You know, like a real General Strike. Yeah. Yeah, just th- just throwing that out there. Just just putting that bug in everybody's ear. Hell, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> You're already uh, striking. Here, here be- Nick's ahead of the curve. <laughs> here begins the... I'm not uh, between jobs. I'm striking. <laughs> <laughs> On your resume, 72-point font. Well, I yeah. think we've started the next phase of uh, of the blog and to our think tank already right here. So here yeah. it begins. There we go. We're, we're just probably going to be... Uh, prediction, in 15 years, this will be a think tank. <laughs> <laughs> we'll all be, at that point, approaching our... 50s no we will be in our 50s we will be 52 53 ish so yeah. i think I, that's I, exactly the age where you have either the means or just the desire to really be in a think tank so yeah for sure mm-hmm. i will still um, be talking about um bear Stearns bravo at that point and alpha centauri <laughs> and alpha centauri yeah good i'm holding you to that okay <laughs> all right i have five predictions uh you do rapid fire I will be yeah, let's do a like rapid fire. Pretend it's like a top ten list on a night, late night show. All right. One, <laughs> uh, a massive contraction in the live service game space will lead to further consolidation of IP and uh, you know massive job losses. Shit. Uh, I agree with that. I do also like that is actually my second prediction. I think we're already seeing the signs of that where. Um, Every game was live service, like every game was a MOBA a few years ago, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. And the cracks are already forming. Like some yep. games have found niches and will continue to subsist. Uh, others, like we, it, it's going to become a losing proposition for a lot of games that are immediately post-release and um, maybe still in the works that they are maybe going to just be canceled to cut losses because finding that niche is live or die for these games mm-hmm. as opposed to you don't really have the option of being a cult game at that point. It's literally we need this many people to stay afloat. Oh. And if you don't have mm-hmm. it, too bad. Yeah, not to stop Dick's momentum or that uh, Spencer, you were kind of um, dovetailing into what you were already going to say, but just to mm-hmm. cherry pick two examples from this um, that come to mind in recent news vehement denial that the Wonder Woman game that WB is working on will be a live service game because there was a rumor that it would be and they were <laughs> they came out and were very much like no 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 it's not going to be like that <laughs> uh and also um the latest trailer for the upcoming as of um right now in 2023 um Suicide Squad game from Rocksteady uh, and how, hey, uh, by the way, everything is going to be like free and it's not a live service game. And we've changed from that awful trailer we released earlier. Uh, it's not going to be that at all. So please buy the game, please. So like it <laughs> it does seem to your point, like 
there is now this element of having those services attached to your game could be a huge liability and some publishers and developers are starting to walk back some of that um, type of mm-hmm. development. I, I personally, the, the hopeful spin that I have on it is that this brings back the more of the long tail model. So instead of having every game be freemium, in effect, where the game itself is free and then you pay for add-ons and cosmetics and everything. Instead, you pay an amount at retail and then the game continues to receive support and continues to receive new features and that entices people to keep buying in. And I think, oddly, the, uh, the example of this that we have seen, the shining example of it, is No Man's Sky, where... The game came out and admittedly was not in the state that they had promised. And every, you know, the, basically the industry kind of went, uh, and, and shrugged its shoulders and moved on. And in that span of time since then, in the seven years subsequently, yep, they have continued to rework and add on to the game with free content updates, free, re- like everything they've done since has been free. And they just keep selling the game because there's no reason to take it off the market. You keep selling it. You keep offering new things and changes. And I think it's worked out really well for Hello Games. Yeah. Now, granted, that's not going to work for everybody. But I think that the risk is lower, perhaps, if you know, you're getting people to pay 30 or $60 to get in the door. And then, you know, you can put it on sales and everything as time goes on, but you are at least getting that initial investment back instead of desperately needing to find X number of whales to keep your game going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I share that hope. I think that, you know, there there is always the the risk of buying a full retail priced game that's always existed. Mm -hmm. And but I think that the problem that a lot of people are realizing is, you know, um, freemium isn't free <laughs> to paraphrase <laughs> a, a phrase I don't like oh. very much yeah. Singer voice. <laughs> yeah and uh I don't know I I, I guess I want to do one more prediction here and then pass it back to Spencer maybe to do uh his other one before I finish out my list but t- related to this uh I am predicting that within probably the next five years but definitely the next 15 uh game pass will implode yeah I think that it is already unsustainable with the volume of content being offered at the price they're asking for. They are ratcheting up the subscription costs. I expect that'll be probably be 20 bucks a month for Ultimate um, by the end of next year. Uh, it just jumped to 17 this year. Um, but I think the bigger forcing function here is that um, a lot of the studios that Microsoft bought are fucking up very badly. <laughs> And if you buy a bunch of companies for what has to be by now approaching like, I don't know, uh, $120 billion, probably counting the Activision Blizzard deal closing, um, if not more than that. And then, but they can't win awards. They can't draw huge crowds to play them. They can't get people to buy add-ons or buy the games just straight up in retail after they leave Game Pass or something, which, you know, Microsoft first party probably won't do that, but never say never. Um, I think it's just as like, it's like Netflix 10, 15 years ago, you know, where it was like such a good deal. 
with all this amazing stuff. And then, you know, to borrow a term from Cory Doctorow, you know, the enshittification began to set in and everything became worse and worse and worse. And Game Pass is just about to hit that fulcrum where that's going to happen. And I think that's probably why Sony never really made an earnest effort to meet them on that playing field is because they saw, A, we can't, we don't have the IP to do this. B, it's just not good business sense in the long run, especially jumping in now. Um, so yeah, I think that uh, it will be nice while it lasts until it's not. I'll say the one wild card I bet there is what happens to the future of Game Pass with Call of Duty now in the stable. And do they, is that, does that continue to still be a draw of an IP? Um, and to hmm. even get people in at a lower level of cost, even if Game Pass goes up to 20, 25, 30 at certain levels for Ultimate a month, does that drive more subscribers for a time? Uh, but I think to your point, over a longer period of time, it just doesn't seem like it's going to... It, that might be the last gasps of a big Game Pass sort of subscriber push is now with Activision in the Microsoft stable and how they price that out and scheme it. Um, Call of Duty being a big driver there. Yeah, uh, th- this actually does tie to kind of the other half of my last point. So following this, Nick can uh, just rapid fire to his heart's content. Um, yeah, simply put, I think that probably... Th- the those major conglomerates because you have sony you have microsoft you have embracer you've got these these companies that have katamaried up to you know be a stereotype uh all this ip trying to kind of silo themselves so even as there's not exclusives per se you know they have the keys to call of duty you have the, the keys to uh spider-man you have those things that are your companies that you can hold on to um and similarly, you've, you've seen a lot of top-down approach to both the, uh, the wow, well, stumbling over it. It's been a while since I recorded anything. <laughs> to both the uh, getting players onto your platform. So the Game Pass is a prime example of that. It's like the last gasp of console exclusives where it's like, oh, well, if you just pay for the subscription service, then you get day one access. You can play the new Halo, you can play the new, um, you know, Outer Worlds was on um, Game Pass day one. There's been a number of big releases on there. And Microsoft can treat it as a loss leader because to play them, you're even going to have to buy an Xbox or a Windows PC and they see a cut of that. And It's not sustainable. It's not a good approach, but it is one that has served them at least in getting people into their uh, ecosystem. Uh, and then similarly, you've seen that same kind of mindset, uh, you know, it's in a different permutation, but uh, where you had Microsoft try to build a Twitch competitor that, oh yeah, honestly, I love. It was great. Uh, but went Mixer? away. With, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, Mixer. And I, I think uh. it was because the, the head of that was implicated in some sex harassment. Oh, thing. great. They were losing money on it. And so they just took that opportunity to pull the plug. Um, with Activision creating uh, Activision Blizzard creating the Overwatch League and the Call of Duty League, totally in the case of the former, top down, which is not how esports actually start in a way that lasts. Because um, you know you you start with community tournaments and tournaments at LAN events, and then you know the prize pools get bigger and everything, and then eventually 
you know, if that's going well, then that is the company's opportunity to be like, oh, yes, this is an eSport now and to, to put money in. And so Blizzard taking that, like, well, we've got the capital, so, hey, it's an eSport. And not securing, really, kind of the community support to, to really make that happen. So all that to say, I, I think that this era has been one of very top-down, where it's like the, the major capital holders are glomming up IPs, they are um, deciding, no, this is the way we're going to do things, kind of in a dictatorial way. And along with the death of live service, I think that we are going to see that those conglomerates kind of contract, they're going to become more conservative, they are going to tragically shed a lot of people. They are going to fire tons of people, studios are going to be closed, it's going to be bad from that standpoint. Um, I remain hopeful in the longer term simply from the standpoint that that is going to kind of open up the space to smaller players to potentially, you know, to make a medium-sized game that is just single player and to release it, you know, for a game made by fewer people working less hours that is shorter. And we might see more of those and we might kind of end up in a, a market where you have the, the big multiplayer games that are kind of ongoing services versus smaller single player experiences. Um, and maybe it'll be more healthy and sustainable at that point. Uh, as noted before, we live in a system of endless growth. I don't know how realistic that is. Uh, executives are very proven to not learn lessons. So, Maybe I'm just talking out of my ass here, but I do at least see the end of the live model, the end of the um, all-you-can-eat uh, subscription for games, and moving back to kind of an older model in terms of uh, pricing and kind of the strategies around those games. I think you're probably right about that. And one thing that that reminded me of is I think indies are really going to suffer even more than they already have been in terms of getting money, because I think... Game Pass arrived right when the uh, market was getting flooded with stuff and publishers were getting much more risk averse and much more, you know, like the devolvers of the world um, are much more cons like focused on sure bets at this point, despite having, you know, taken quite a few gambles in the past. And so that risk aversion increasing along with uh, Game Pass as a sort of like, we'll give you a pile of money for putting the game on here for a while. And, you know, even to an indie, you know, 50 to 100k could be a pile of money that can be a, a you know life-changing for allowing you to keep doing your business for however long so mm -hmm. if that goes away um it's going to be very tough for the traditional like you know one to ten person indie team to uh find a space in this market and find attention and find find eyeballs so i don't know what's going to happen there we might be looking at like the dawn of a new double a or that just becomes the, the, the new model, the de facto style of studio that's successful on its own. But we will see. All right. Uh, I'm going to just quickly throw these out the window. If you want to remark on them, you are welcome to. Uh, number three, uh, Nintendo will not be acquired despite many pundits uh, <laughs> claiming they will be uh, over the next 15 years. I mean, mm -hmm. people have been claiming that over the last 15 years, too. It is a yep. perennial favorite that, oh, well, Microsoft just has the capital sitting around to to buy or Nintendo. Or Apple I don't think that, times, people have said. I mean, that would be a way to 
well, I'd say kill Apple Nintendo. would get into games, but I think it would actually end up being Apple killing Nintendo. But um, yeah, I, I think that to believe that at this point is is basically delusion. Like, I don't think that enough of Nintendo is publicly held to hostile to do a hostile takeover. And yeah, it, the company itself has shown no interest in being taken over. Like. They printed money with the Wii. They printed money with the Switch. They'll remain independent as long as they care to. Yeah, I mean, this was a softball. I wanted to get one right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, little, swing, number f- little swing. Just bunted that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number four. Um, and this this pains me. Uh, and it's a bit strange coming out of my mouth. But uh, specialized games journalism will keep getting worse. And mainstream games coverage and reporting will keep getting better interesting okay the the reason is money (laughs) so so specialized games journalism how do you mean by that because i I can think of a couple of off-kilter examples i would say uh any website publication magazine even um that or podcast uh that is uh entirely or primarily games focused like, are you? Would you include the recently launched aftermath in there? Yes, mm-hmm. but I'm thinking of Kotaku, Polygon, um, PC Gamer, um, all these avenues that have like long been uh, Game Informer diminishing returns uh, for years. Yeah, um, and you know, many of them, like IGN, even Gamespot and Polygon, have pivoted to being a kind of like pop culture outlets with a game anchor yeah um but the game's coverage has suffered dramatically like the amount of original reporting on games none of that really comes out of those sites anymore it's almost all coming from like the washington post or bloomberg or npr even and Mm -hmm. uh you know to be a little candid i don't think npr's coverage is really in a good place yet but uh with jason schreier moving to bloomberg for example and then um uh, some other folks landing in some bigger places um I think that they, my hope is that we will see uh, an increase in good, solid investigative games reporting because the the industry has benefited so much from a lack of scrutiny from the shady dealings they engage Mm in. And, uh, but what I fear is that the, um, the good old fashioned criticism, you know, the artistic medium criticism uh, will not get a whole lot better. Uh, I think it's mostly going to be independent people doing their own thing, academics, hobbyists, and academics. So, I, I think I so. I think I would agree with you. Yeah, I mean, I see where you're coming from. I personally think that games journalism, games like news, will get better the further away it moves from just being, you know, a, a recycling outlet for press releases. Which sure, that has been kind of the focus of a lot of websites and publications for a long time, yeah. and I think the more that an effort is made to specialize, so whether it be um, in-depth investigative reporting, if it being like digging into communities and talking with people who are, condi- which I've seen some kind of coming down the pipe and um, and existing on those websites where you know you they look for a reporter to cover a beat, and that beat is a specific game in its community, mm-hmm. and. There's something to that. I do think that, you know, 
the internet is a big place. Games is a big space. And to expect every site, every publication to be all things to everybody is, is ridiculous. So I, I think perhaps they won't get so much worse if there is an effort to specialize and an effort to kind of set yourselves apart and, you know, check out player accounts, dot, uh, dot net, et cetera. You know, that type of thing. It would be, I think quickly just the wild to think about if, uh, the specialized enthusiast press that had splintered off just like so much media. So talking from a journalistic and journalism history thing here, if, um, the last bastions of, uh, video game discussion and coverage went back to these giant, archaic, old school um, publications. Your New York Times, your even NPR, um, rather than these smaller enthusiast sites and publications um, that uh, way back came about as media itself splintered, you know, 30 plus years ago into these enthusiast areas. But then that funding model has been running dry for years and uh, mm-hmm. I guess that's why we're seeing and because the industry is of course a multi-billion dollar industry so from a business perspective it makes sense for your um, classical newspapers or other outlets to say oh I guess we should throw some coverage at this yeah I think this kind of one thing I didn't mention that you both kind of alluded to, I think is just that like the market forces are dictating uh, uh, what gets printed, what gets money these days. And, you know, like the games, the world of games is massive and there are or, you know, have been beat reporters for specific games. But uh, to my knowledge, almost all of them have been fired in the last couple of years. Like Fanbyte doesn't exist anymore. And they used to have a Final Fantasy 14 beat, a Destiny 2 beat, etc., um, that doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think that that made a whole lot of money or not enough money to the vultures who are, you know, holding the, the, uh, purse strings at these companies, uh, or at their parent companies. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I would pay for great games criticism. Uh, if you can show me it, I will. Oof. In the meantime, I'll keep trying to get it closer and closer to making it myself, but it's, <laughs> it's very hard. Uh, there, there's a reason it doesn't exist everywhere. Yeah. All right. Uh, My fifth and final one. Nintendo will localize and release Mother 3. (laughs) You definitely... This this feels like wish fulfillment. Yeah, you definitely uh, kept that softball one in there for a good reason. I Yeah, I felt like I really needed to put some positive energy into the universe because this is not going to happen without it. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, fuck it. Like, why not just put, you know, why not shoot your shot and... uh, manifests or something i yeah i i mean look i am a long-suffering earthbound slash mother fan myself i played the fan translation excellent translation years ago um of mother three and felt like i got what i needed out of that but uh i certainly would it would feel like hell froze over if this actually ever officially got out yeah, I I don't know. I I said earlier that every you know, the the reason that we have so much like lack of exclusives and everything is cross-platform and everything is cuz every company um, you know, is trying to get as much money as possible. Nintendo is unique in that sometimes they don't seem to want money. 
and just don't care. And the the translation of uh, or the lack of translation of Mother Three is just kind of evidence to that. Where it's like you would probably make a lot. You could just translate it. You wouldn't have to like remaster it or anything. You could just do a translated like SNES ROM. Uh, just to use the translation console. that already exists yeah. that they've offered for free to Nintendo. I- exactly. And you would make a bunch of money on it. And they're just like, eh. <laughs> that's the entire reaction. It's just, mm-hmm. you know what? That's <laughs> uh, not worth it. So Nintendo is cryptic in that regard. But, you know, they always Yeah, it would seem like so. we're more likely to get a sequel in that series in general than actually the third game ever getting localized officially. <laughs> Gosh, yeah, maybe so. Probably. I'm not sure what Shigesato Itoi is doing these days, but I don't think he's making more no, games. he's not. He's not in the industry as far as I last remember reading. Hmm. Well, alas. Wow, 15 yeah. years behind us. Some predictions ahead of us. It's uh, almost 30 years thinking about <laughs> thinking about video games in the industry and where it's gone and uh, where it's been and where it's going. Yeah. Yeah. Don't forget to drink water. Is this just well, well, you can, folks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> from recent peanut-related uh, experiences. I just meant in terms of more what Spencer's alluding to. <laughs> <laughs> not again. Not to be too. Dark. I I hope for a a good future. I I'm e- eagerly and earnestly for a variety of reasons hoping for a good future. And yeah, the the like, one that ends up with me, you know being the bane of the people at the nursing home because I just keep <laughs> like dragging out old computers and wiring them to each other. And it's like, come on, land night is the third Thursday. Like, you can't just do this every day. Like, Why not? We're just trying to watch yeah. Friends reruns on... Yeah. <laughs> oh, that, don't insult me. Like that. I well, other people would be watching. Look, oh, okay, yeah. yeah. The, everybody else, I yeah. guess. That, okay. that in the office will be in the, all the old folks' homes for millennials. <laughs> Look, in in general, I really want to strike a positive tone about the future. Ah. And I I just hope that we can, you know, uh, find some solidarity around this concept and, uh, you know, fucking stop working uh, until we uh, fix every problem. <laughs> well, again, you're ahead of the curve uh, there, I mean, buddy. On that, uh, I, on that same kind of note, like, uh, eat well and... Pray richly, oh. I suppose. And love. Yep. Also, don't forget to take regular breaks if you're playing video games. You should not uh, stare at a screen for more than 20 minutes without looking away and blinking. Um, it's important to stand up every hour and walk around a little bit. And get actually, that's the refill to your whiskey. That that uh, health advice I'm, is probably I'm, the most important um, thing in the last 15 years. Of uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm preparing for a land weekend here, and I'm hoping Nick drops by. Uh, I promise I will be con- coherent. It won't be a game of the year 2013, 2014, was it? Oh, I forget gosh. which one it was. Well, but when I dialed in from a land, uh, <laughs> raging drunk. Raging and drunk. Well, let's hope the raging and drunk. Yeah, I guess that was where two distinct. I, I hope that the postscript of this episode is a live um, dispatch from that land with both of you drunk. But I can only hope. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, I'm hoping I can make it. But, yeah, fingers uh, crossed. In the hope meantime, uh, thank you both for joining for this. It's a it's fun to dust off the old uh, podcasting uh, 
apparatus again. Yes, yeah. my voice. Boy. I never get to use it anymore other than complain. I'm really wondering <laughs> what a podcasting apparatus looks like. <laughs> I'm, I don't know. I'm picturing like alchemical bullshit. It's a truck nest on your uh, rolling coal tower. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. There you go. Yes. You're not podcasting unless those bad boys are attached. Yeah. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for the last 15 years uh, of partnership and fellowship and friendship in this blog. Thanks for this podcast as well. And uh, I hope it won't be too long before the next one where we're all together, other than Game of the Year, which I assume we'll do something again for that. So, Yes, indeed. Yeah. Thank you all again. And uh, yeah, thank you also to everyone who's listening or has listened or has read in the past. Uh, we keep doing this, I think, not entirely just to hear the sound of our own voices and usually that's not the point uh but more just in the hopes of like offering something of some value to people so uh if you're listening to this thank you and uh yeah we'll be back with more stuff uh i guess for 15 more years Adios.